We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Hello, and welcome to Sorted Cinema. With the fifth installment of the Scream series coming to the, uh, coming to theaters and your various bedrooms uh, over the next little while, we thought uh, 25 years in, it might be a good time to check in on the original film from 1996, directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. We're joined by special guest Leah Worsby. Uh, let's hear a clip and come back. Hello. Hello. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. I am calling the police. They never make it in time. This is Gail Weathers with an exclusive. Authorities are baffled. They were warned by the killer. It all began with a scream over 911, like the plot of some scary movie. Hello, Sydney. Do you like scary movies? What's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act, who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. <laughs> Never, ever say, I'll be right back, because you won't be back. Get another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Hello, you're listening to Sorted Cinema. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined by Ricky D. Hey, what's up, Simon? And uh, we're also joined by Tilt contributor Leah Worsby. Leah, how you doing? I am doing well. All right. So, Ricky, it was your pick this week. Uh, and to be honest, I was worried about this one because, you know, well, here's some context. I'll take you behind the scenes a little bit. Ricky had previously picked a series for us to talk about, and I really did not respond well to the series. So we didn't do the segment. We, yeah, Ricky may do the segment later with someone else, but I really was not, I hadn't seen Scream in a long time. Uh, and I was really worried that I was not going to respond well to it either. And then I was going to feel like an asshole for not liking any of your picks. Uh, but thankfully, that was not my response. Uh, we'll get to that later. But um, what, 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 what's your history with Scream? Why, why did you want to talk about it? 
Well, the series was hellbound, and the reason why I agreed to cancel the show is because you would have to watch six hours of a TV show, which is six hours of your life, compared to an hour and a half of a movie. I would not let you cancel this review. <laughs> so, <laughs> Fair enough. little behind the scenes for listeners of how our podcast works. Why did I choose Scream? There's a million reasons why. And first of all, it celebrates its 25th anniversary this week. Um, second of all, Scream 5 is going to be released in 2022. And we reviewed Scream 2 on the podcast last year. And on that podcast, I went on to say that Scream 2 is the better film in the franchise. And after watching Scream again last night for maybe like the 50th time, I still do <laughs> think Scream 2 is the best film of the series. But I also think this is an amazing movie. And I said this on the podcast when we reviewed Scream 2 that I used to say A Nightmare on Elm Street was my favorite horror franchise. That has a lot to do with the fact that that first movie made me like a horror movie buff. It's the movie that made me notice a director's name, Wes Craven, and notice the actors, Johnny Depp. And it just blew my mind, right? But the problem with the Nightmare on Elm Street series is that there's really only two good movies in the franchise. And there's one movie that's okay. And the rest are fun, but they're not good movies. The thing about Scream is I think all four movies are actually good. I think the first two are actually great. And I think they're two of the greatest horror films ever made. And I don't know. I think that's enough reason to revisit the original film. And also 25 years is a long time. And there's a lot of new kids that are watching this movie movie for the first time. And they don't know little simple things. Like, for example, this, I believe, was one of the first major Hollywood horror films to use technology and integrate it into the screenplay because I don't remember a slasher film or horror film, for example, using a cell phone. Like the cell phone is a really crucial, important device, like a, a prop. And it's used in a way where it's done smartly. You know, it's it's convenient, but it's clever. Like little things like that that I don't think people realize because it's 25 years later. Now every movie has a cell phone in it. Boy, what are you doing with a cellular phone? I had to write that line down. Um, it's extremely funny. Um, to clarify, that is a cellular phone because I looked at that phone when it fell out of his pocket and went, are we sure that's a cellular phone? It mm -hmm. looks like a landline. Yeah, I <laughs> thought it was a cordless phone too. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah, but... I honestly, I, I didn't even think about the technology until I was watching a making of YouTube video. I think it's the making of featurette that's on the actual Blu-ray or DVD. And they do say it's a cell phone. And I was just like, damn, it's huge. Leah, would you concur with uh, with Ricky's scream rankings? Like, do you, does that vibe with you? So I have to admit, I have actually never seen Scream 4. Yeah. <laughs> So I was just going to say Scream 4 is, is fine. It's an okay movie. Not it's good. It's better than 3. Oh. See, I'm I'm 31, and so I grew up, like, having seen Scream 3 and maybe even 2 a little bit. But Scream 3, I think, was constantly on TV, like, on FX or something throughout, like, all of high school for me. I just feel like it was constantly on TV. I'm not sure why with distribution that's the case. And then because Scream 1 and 2 are so great, I've constantly seen them every year for Halloween. Um, and I just, 
kept meaning to get around to see Scream 4 and it never happened. And I'm going to write a ranking of the Scream movies before Scream 5 comes out for Tilt. So it's finally time to see Scream 4 and see how I feel. Yeah. I, I just want to know, did you, did any of you watch any of these movies on the big screen when they first came out? Because you said you were 31, so therefore I'm assuming no. <laughs> no, yeah, because I was just too young to see even Scream 3, I think, in the movie theaters. I think you and I saw Scream 4 in a theater together. I could be wrong. Yeah, we, well, we no, no, no. We saw an early advanced press screening of Scream 4, me, you, and Justine, and it was like three That's people right. in the movie theater, just us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of thing. Wow, that doesn't that seem like such a distant memory now? Dear Lord. Advanced movie theater screenings in real in a real movie theater. What a fucking luxury. <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to uh, derail your question, but the reason why I bring this up is because when this movie came out, it came out during the Christmas holiday season. And it mm-hmm. was really odd to have a horror film being released in the month of December. And this was at a time when horror films, especially slasher films, weren't very good. Like, I mean, I can easily come up with a list of the 50 best horror films of the 90s, but it's like it's going to be tough trying to decide what to put in the last 10 spots. Whereas if you look at the 70s, the 80s and 2000 moving forward, I can make a list of like the 100 best horror films easily. Right. So there wasn't as many good horror films being released in the 90s. Like there was stuff like Candyman and John Carpenter was doing his thing. But this was a big deal. And I'm pretty sure it didn't do very well week one. It started to really pick up steam week two, week three, because of word of mouth, because everyone's like, you need to go see this movie. And this movie came out at a time when the Internet was just becoming a kind of like a household thing where people actually had like blogs and stuff. And even back then, there weren't very many blogs. So there was no social media and it was easy to avoid spoilers. So you wouldn't know who died. You wouldn't know about the big twist in the first 12 minutes. But it went on to make like, I think, a hundred million dollars within its like first few months and it made so much money that they actually started making the sequel while scream was still playing on the big screen yeah they went i mean obviously it's signposted even within the movie but clearly everyone involved in the production of this film assuming certain benchmarks were hit were totally ready willing and able to franchise the fuck out of it Uh, although thankfully it's not like today where if this happened there would also be spinoffs and like I don't know, prequels. <laughs> I feel like, I mean, yeah, I shouldn't have said that because they could still do that. Uh, but um, anyway, I I hadn't seen this in a while. I feel like I'd, I'd, I'd seen one of the sequels more recently. I was really curious to see how it was going to hold up. And I have to say, I think it holds up really, really well. Uh, even as someone who has not watched it 50 times, I've maybe watched it like four times, including uh, a recent viewing, obviously, for this podcast. Um, the... Uh, the main thing that really jumped out at me is I think why this this movie did so well is I think it's just it's so loaded with humanity, which I think really separates like late night. I feel like 90s American horror. I could be wrong about this, but I feel like, you know, people were pushing the boundaries of, of violence and kind of, you know, things are getting more and more grim. But I think what makes Scream stand out is that it's absolutely loaded with um with character actors of all ages and uh this sort of sm- this sort of cozy uh you know americana vibe um r- right down to the friendly cops which are definitely the most anomalous thing in the movie um you know in terms of current pop culture but um i don't know i think it's just it's got a lot of charm and i think that goes a long way to 
um it complements the brutality nicely like it it sort of you know the the whole drew barrymore opening for instance um you know i'm not going to say that the movie has a level of empathy and identification to match you know laura palmer on twin peaks or something but i don't think it's totally not like that either you know i i think we we sort of get to know the character a little bit uh and we spend a lot of time with her and it's a really great showcase for drew barrymore uh, and then afterwards there really is like a a feeling of loss and mourning and and tragedy uh and i i think that that humanity courses through a lot of the rest of the movie, right down to those sort of shaggy scenes of um, Courtney Cox and David Arquette just walking around flirting with each other, which don't really add anything to the plot, but they do add a lot to the character. And I think that's what the movie is brimming with. Um, when you were talking about uh, we haven't gotten a prequel yet is all of a sudden I just saw us getting a prequel now about um, Sidney Prescott's mom. We've never gotten that. Prequel oh my God. Yet. Yeah. Maybe it's coming. Maybe it's waiting. <laughs> We'll see it in the next five years. <laughs> you know, Simon, you're not wrong. And what makes this movie so great for its time and even 25 years later is because most horror films, most slasher films, they revolve around the killer. It's the killer who is the star. It's Freddy. It's Jason. It's Michael Myers. It's the boogeyman. Right. And we usually get scenes in the point of view of the killer, the POV shot of them killing you know, the POV shot of them lurking around, et cetera, et cetera. In Scream, it really occupies a female space. It's about these women. It's about Gail. It's about, um, it's about Sydney, uh, Sydney, Sydney Prescott. And we never get the point of view of the killer, even in the amazing 12 minute opening scene, which we're going to talk about after the break featuring Drew Barrymore. It's never really in the point of view of the killer. And here we have Sydney Prescott, we learn her mom was murdered a year earlier because of rumors about her having an affair. And then here we are in present day and we have Sydney and she struggles with her own sexual identity and it's a coming of age film and she's got this really messed up boyfriend. And then at the end of the film, she actually loses her virginity not listening to Randy's advice about the premarital sex and how it usually leads to women dying in horror films, which therefore deconstructs the usual trope that any woman who sexualized or has sex in a film, in a horror film, in a slasher film, will end up dying. And so all of this is like really carefully thought of and written. And Wes Craven did an amazing job in directing, as did the women in the roles. Because, I mean, like, Nev Campbell is incredible. Courtney Cox is incredible in these in, in this movie, in all, in all four films. And that's what I love about Scream because of the humanity. Because we actually do care about these characters. And we do get to know these characters. Not especially through the course of, like, four movies. But even in this first movie, like, when the credits roll, you want to see a sequel featuring these specific characters. I just love how it really is about character and not just about a serial killer running around chopping people's heads off. And I, I can't think of another slasher or horror series where, I mean, a lot of them have maybe one or two through line characters. I mean, the Halloween movies have, you know, Dr. Loomis and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and all that. But it's I feel like it's quite rare that they'll have a whole ensemble that sticks around for the for every movie and that's there's there's at least four or five actors who are like in every screen movie you could argue black christmas to, to an extent like there's a group of girls that that's what i love about black christmas versus halloween like 
I'm sorry, but we don't know anything about Lori in that first movie. Like we mm-hmm. barely know her. No, but I mean, like uh, Black Christmas is just I mean, they've made it three times, but it's always just one movie, right? Like these this is a whole franchise where we follow the characters from movie to movie to movie. Which oh, is yeah, also sure. which is also funny because it necessitates them to add a bunch of new people that they can kill because they're not allowed to kill, you know, Dewey or whatever. Well, in Nightmare, we do have a few characters who do reappear in the sequels. But I mean, like the like the original character, Nancy, from from the first movie, she only appears in, I believe, the third film and the seventh film. The um another aspect of the movie that I, I think has aged really interestingly, I don't I don't even think it's bad is the fact that these are ostensibly high schoolers played by people in I, I looked up their the the average age of a of a scream high schooler is about twenty four, which is not that outlandish uh for the period. What is outlandish is that um the characters for the first two acts seem re- are really they they talk about sex like they're actually sixteen or like fifteen even. Like they're very skittish about it. They're talking anyway. There's this whole long discussion early in the film where, again, these two actors in their mid twenties are talking about, you know, have, how they haven't had sex yet, and it's just bizarre. It's a very strange uh, sequence, um, and I, I'd be really curious to see how uh, how how modern, especially younger audiences, handle that. But I think it's it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, I think talking about the humanity of all of the characters is reminding me about why I keep consistently being drawn back to scream every year is I don't even realize it until I watch another horror film. And this is one of those unique horror film franchises where I don't feel like someone hates women who was involved in writing these characters, directing these characters. And there are a lot of horror films, especially older ones where there is like an inherent did the person who write this or direct this actually even like women? I don't, I don't know Mm. a single woman who would react like this, or I don't know a single woman who would do this or like this woman doesn't even have a personality. And, you know, and it's so like, I mean, that's a whole conversation of itself of like, you know, sexist themes within horror films in general, but it's something that always consistently endears me to scream where even, even Rose McGowan, who historically, almost everything Rose McGowan was cast in, especially at this age, she was constantly talking about how sexualized she was. And she was cast in that best friend role that in most horror films, like that's it. That's your characteristic, right? You're the one who's maybe sexual compared to the final girl who's a virgin. And she doesn't even, she doesn't even get cast in that. We don't even see her naked when she dies. Like we don't, do you know what I mean? There were so many opportunities to, sexualize her to an unfair degree and that doesn't happen to her and she gets to fight back as she dies and I just I don't know it consistently endears me to the franchise in general and makes me want to keep watching it yeah very and I like I don't even usually I have to give a hat tip to Rose McGowan here because I don't know how much she's going to come up again because I think she's really good in this I I generally she's not an actor I think a lot about but she's great here uh, the whole ensemble is really good. I love how the movie is absolutely stacked with um, just fun to look at middle-aged white guys who I assume are all Wes Craven's golf buddies, like Henry Winkler, who is not even credited. But anyway, it's another thing we can get to at another time. The cast um, is incredible. It's, it's amazing. Very stacked. I love and I God, even uh, I, again, it's kind of silly that they've got, got people in their mid-20s playing high schoolers, but um 
like Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich, like they've all got such fun faces to look at and are giving such fun performances. But Simon, you're not wrong because I was watching it again last night. I could not help but think how odd it was to watch these older actors play teens and talk about sex the way they do. Like it would make sense if they were very like religious, if it was a very religious community. And you can like stretch your imagination just like, you know know what I mean? But we don't get that problem in Scream 3 or Scream 4. Scream 2 to some extent, but like especially Scream 3 and Scream 4, they do tend to cast younger. I don't think they made a mistake with the casting because the casting is brilliant. But it is odd that they are so old for the part. Like 24 playing a 16-year-old or 17-year-old, is it's like a stretch. Especially in that nightgown. That nightgown kills me. <laughs> oh my so God, the, yeah. Thinking about them being in their 20s in the nightgown talking about sex. I, I, <laughs> I read a few articles over the years that have often said that this film is not original. And I completely disagree. I understand oh, yeah. that it references horror films from the past. And I understand it's very meta. But this is so original. Like, I just explained how it's so different from the Friday the 13th, the Halloween's, the Nightmare on Elm Street's, and, and the way it it's all about the actual victims and not about the killers. But it's also original because, like, to say it's like Halloween is not at all factually correct. Yes, it's a slasher film, but Halloween is not a whodunit. Most of those films are not a whodunit. Like, you don't know who the killer is, necessarily. But you don't have a bunch of characters and a police force and a detective walking around throughout mm-hmm. the whole entire film trying to figure out who the killer is, not to mention the actual audience. And so what's what's great about watching Scream for the first time and even on repeat viewings is you're at the edge of your seat because of the suspense, because the killer is chasing the victims, but also because you don't know who the killer is. So even in a quiet moment, when you have two or three characters talking you're not sure if they're talking to the killer. So that's what keeps the audience at the edge of their seat. And that's what I think made it different than the previous slasher films. Like maybe to an extent there was Mario Bava movies, like those Italian horror films from like the seventies. But I don't think most American audiences watch those movies. Mm -hmm. On top of the whodunit aspect, the other biggest thing to me that makes this a Willa unique entity or ip is the meta-ness of it all because it's so hard to look at this from a 2020 to 2021 lens and remember that this was one of the first films to go this hard into that kind of meta-ness and to constantly be self-referential and like now we see it all the time right but we didn't see it all the time in the late 90s like this especially with a horror genre like this so i think that it's it, I, yeah, it's a completely original IP to me. So to say that it's not is a little silly, and I think it's probably based more off of thinking about it now versus thinking about it in 1997. Well, the thing is, in 1996-97, we had mainstream critics, like no offense, Roger Ebert, that would review a movie like this, and they would say something like, this movie is not original. It's like every slasher film. And they were wrong. Like, they were wrong. This is one of the most influential films ever made. It doesn't matter the genre. If you weren't born when this movie was released, or if you were too young to see it at all, like in a movie theater or on home video, you maybe might not understand. But 
everything from Marvel films to Cabin in the Woods to your basic horror film, they basically follow the template here from the actual writer in terms of like how and it's not just about pop culture references like it's also about just the way they blend the comedy into the Mm -hmm. movie because Mm -hmm. as much as this is a thriller and horror film it's also a dark comedy but and it's also sort of a video essay in a way like it's not um you know we're talking about the meta-ness and the self-referentiality and that's all there, and there's definitely a lot of people talking about horror films, naming specific characters, etc. And, of course, we have the sequence where um, the uh, film nerd... Uh, by the way, shout out to this movie for establishing very clearly that cinephiles are not to be trusted, um, <laughs> which, is, which is completely true in my experience. Um, but, um, you know, besides that, it's also, as a movie, it's using these references, but it's also sort of... It's not it's making an argument. It's not just, uh, it's not just putting stuff on the screen for you to react to. And the, the best example, the clearest example of this is of course, when we have the sequence of them watching Jamie Lee Curtis and waiting, uh, lustily for the quote unquote obligatory tit shot, which is cross cut in like, uh, I, I mean, I, I hope Brian De Palma likes this movie. Um, I think he does. Um, Crosscut with the act, quote unquote, actual sex scene, which is in the movie, which, of course, does not contain an obligatory tit shot. That's the movie making a very clear case for saying you don't actually need these things in your horror movie to have a good, a good, effective horror film. Uh, And I think that in that aspect, I think it's basically timeless. Yes, there's also an argument to be made that there's a commentary on the media and saturated culture. One of the key players here is Gil. And so she represents the industry and an industry that exploits and capitalizes its victims, but also just our society in general, how we're so obsessed with media and and celebrities and and true crime. And I I think you get a little bit more of that commentary in the sequels, but it does exist in this movie. And it's a starting point for a lot of conversations to come in the future. Because a lot of movies after Scream had a lot to say about media. And people are more obsessed with true crime now than probably ever. So, you know, very prescient in that sense. I haven't watched Scream 4 in a while, but I'm pretty sure they tap into true crime in Scream 4. So I'm I'm really curious to see what happens in Scream 5. I'm actually I'm actually curious to revisit these other movies and see if maybe I was too harsh on the on the later ones. Um, But it's. It's kind of funny that the the film has this kind of barbed uh, satirical lens on, you know, the new the news, the news industry as represented by Courtney Cox and poor W. Earl Brown, who gets uh, horribly murdered in this film. Um, shout out to that guy. Uh, but also they've made her character very likable and like have very clearly they very clearly establish her in the film as like one of the principal characters we're supposed to like and root for which i thought i think that's a really interesting choice like they could have very easily made her a nightcrawler style like sociopathic villain which at times like it seems like that's what they're going with but instead they just decided to make her like nice and cool which is just an interesting choice and ambitious like i like that her ambition it stays consistent um just because just having a woman be ambitious, but she's not the villain, like you're saying, that's a big deal. And again, it seems, oh, passe, it's done, whatever now. But it wasn't 
being done in the late 90s. So actually, my favorite character beat for her is about I want to say like about halfway through the film when she has a conversation with Sydney about her absurd backstory, um, which we'll get into at some point. And after having this conversation, she pivots in a moment to say, oh, okay, so the new story is now this, like totally abandoning her previous convictions just because it's a better story, which I just thought was such a great touch. Yeah. Like she's so smart. I love Gail and I'll forget how much I love Gail. And then I'll watch a movie and I'm like, that's right. Gail. Gail is queen. What an icon. I just want to quickly say that, um, you know, we're, we, we talked a lot about the actual cast and we're going to talk more about the cast, but I do want to say the actual killer, like it's kind of really clever. The actual costume, like Ghostface is one of the most iconic characters in cinema history, but Ghostface isn't really a character. It's not, it's not a person. It's it's a group of people. Like anyone that actually dons the costume is Ghostface. And the fact that the costume, the actual face, is is um, <clears throat> takes influence from the, the very famous painting. Like that's kind of like really cool. But again, what I like about the actual killer is it's just a person. It's not... Mm-hmm someone who's dead it's not someone who has magical powers it's it's not a creature feature it's not freddy it's not jason it's it's a person and in this case it's actually two people um and i was trying to trying to think really hard if there was a movie at least a horror film that was released before scream that featured an ending with two killers and i cannot for the life of me think of one movie because there has got to be a giallo that does this there has to be i I went i went over my list of the 35 best giallo films and then i looked at the directors and the filmography and i've watched a lot of them and you you might be right simon but i can't for the life of me think of a film with two killers but also rope it's not a mystery but it does no killers but it's not a horror film but i guess yeah because he does I, I drop still, from, I, from Hitchcock's cycle with the yeah. opening scene, killing off Drew Barrymore. And to be honest, the two killers in this movie do have a rope-esque relationship. Like, we don't see you know a what? lot of it, but uh, it's definitely there. You are not wrong. <laughs> I'm never wrong. <clears throat> I'm trying to think of what else we should talk about before we, uh, before we hit our break. I will say, since we've been uh, uh, totally positive, I'm going to open the floor to some um, uh, criticisms, even if they're only minor. And I would just say by overall, well, we'll, we'll we, we could talk about stuff we want to change. But uh, I do think in gen- this, it, my general like note for the movie would be kind of what you'd expect, which is that as, as the focus does shift from, uh, from our victims, heroines, et cetera, necessarily more to the villains uh, as we hit our third act i think that does weaken the movie for a while because you know the the, the movie mocks the concept of motive uh in a in a in a scene that kind of pre- prefigures funny games in my opinion but um it it still does have them plainly expose us one uh which has a meta uh, kick to it i guess but it isn't as much fun to watch in my opinion yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna disagree but uh, I do want to give a special mention to the actual score from Marco Beltrami. Oh, yeah. Is that how you pronounce yeah. the name? Beltrami? Beltrami? I assume so. Marco Beltrami. So this was the first time he actually scored a full-length feature film. I think he had done TV work prior, maybe short films. 
and he had a very very small budget but damn the score is so underrated now his score for scream 2 is way better because he had a bigger budget but what he does with a small budget and a small orchestra and there's a lot of synth that he uses throughout the whole entire score i think he does an incredible job and if you watch that first scene without sound like it's still a great scene because wes craven's an amazing director and just the way he sets his shots and composes his shots and you know it's it's incredible but with the sound like you really do notice how amazing the score is and so i just think he doesn't get enough credit for his score for scream because everyone talks about him working with david lynch twin peaks blue velvet i think etc etc lost highway i think he too um but yeah his stuff here is really really good I had forgotten how much I loved the score. And then in my notes from the movie, I just wrote in big letters, score, score, check out who wrote yep, this. Same. <laughs> and Absolute I same. didn't even realize he has two Oscar nominations for The Hurt Locker and 310 to Yuma. And then, yeah, I wasn't fully aware of Beltrami. And then I was looking through his filmography and I, I went, oh my God, I didn't realize that this was all him. Mm-hmm. Well, what he did here was he he hates horror films. He, he will not watch horror movies. And so he decided to take up he decided to take inspiration from uh Ennio Marconi, Christopher mm-hmm. Young, Hans Zimmer and there's someone else. And so if you listen to the score for example, like Dewey's character is clearly inspired like his theme, it's inspired by like those spaghetti westerns. And Nev Campbell's character has a different sort of like feel to it like in terms of like the music and that's where like someone like Hans Zimmer comes in. But it's 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 really it's a really interesting score. I don't know if it works in a sense that I would want to listen to it in the background while I'm working, mm. but it does work for the actual horror film. I mean, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I mean, no, I, no, I, 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 I like the idea of just like I'm working from home and I'm just playing the scream score and then like my phone. <laughs> I work like a bad, for a mainstream radio station that plays like Ed Sheeran every hour. Oh. And if I listen to that every hour, my brain's going to explode. Yeah, oh, I like you know what? Never mind. Throw on the screen score yeah <laughs> it's better than that at least <laughs> oh my god if i if i ever hear galway girl in public i am gonna uh, oh, no. censored uh parody etc anyway um let's uh, let's take a quick break and uh come back and and uh do a run I, what i suspect will be a meaty run through our usual round of questions let's hear a clip if you were the only suspect in a senseless bloodbath would you be standing in the horror section it was just a misunderstanding. He didn't do anything. You're such a little lap dog. He's got killer printed all over his forehead. Okay. Really? Why'd the cops let him go, smart guy? Because obviously they don't watch enough movies. This is standard horror movie stuff. Prom night revisited, man. Yeah? Why would he want to kill his own girlfriend? There's always some stupid bullshit reason to kill your girlfriend. That's the beauty of it all. Simplicity. Besides, if it gets too complicated, you lose your target audience. Well, what's his reason? Maybe Sydney wouldn't have sex with him. <laughs> what, is she saving herself for you? Maybe. Now that Billy tried to mutilate her, do you think Sid would go out with me? <laughs> no, I don't at all. No. You know what I think it is? You know, I think it's her father. Why can't they find her pops, man? Because he's probably dead. 
His body will come popping up in the last reel somewhere. Eyes gouged out, fingers cut off, teeth knocked out. See, the police are always off track with this shit. If they'd watch prom night, they'd save time. There's a formula to it. A very simple formula. Everybody's a suspect. We're back. Let's let's keep it simple. Most valuable player. Uh, you're allowed to pick Wes Craven, I've decided, because there's a lot of competition this week. Um, uh, Leah, what are, you, what are you thinking? Who's, who's your MVP? Who you got? Um, I might have to go with the obvious Gale. Gale is just not only for every single mini skirt suit that she's wearing in these horrid neon colors. Is she an MVP? I love this, these outfits. <laughs> she saves mm-hmm. the day at the end for all the reasons we already talked about with her. She consistently has her eye on the, on the goal. She's ambitious. She's ready to be flexible to change when she has to, in terms of what story she's trying to get. But she's also smart enough to continue to like follow her gut and, just every time her and Deer on screen, like y'all were saying earlier, that chemistry, I just love it so much. I, I'm a I'm a Gale fan. Gale till I die. Uh, Courtney Cox, probably the, I don't know if it's the only chance she'll get to get an MVP award on this show, but you know what? <laughs> I'm, glad she, I'm glad she got at least one. Yeah. Simon, I think when we reviewed Screen 2, someone gave her the MVP. There you go. Um... I have nothing against Courtney Cox. I'm glad that she got a, a good spotlight in these films. Yeah. Um, Ricky, who you got? Who you got as, uh, as as your pick? Well, I think Wes Craven is the MVP because I really do think his actual direction is solid and everything from the way he builds the suspense, directs the actors, composes his shots. He's a master of horror for a reason. And if you look at that opening scene, which I'm going to talk about, again (laughs) in a few minutes but i mean it's it's an opening scene that no one could stop talking about and i know it was already in the screenplay so you can give credit to the actual screenplay writer but if you ever listen to an interview with kevin williamson he says that when he wrote the screenplay he he wouldn't write for example like in this scene so and so runs to the kitchen grabs a knife and then the killer runs through the wall and then tackles her to the floor like he would never ever in his screenplays tell the director how he or she should film the actual scene. So he would just supply the character development and the dialogue. And he would just rely on Wes Craven to do his thing because he's a a really incredible director and he doesn't need the screenplay writer to tell him how to establish a shot, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So that whole opening scene, yes, it's there in the screenplay, but it's so vague. Like you get the phone call, you get the dialogue and we give credit and to the screenplay writer for the pop culture references and how meta it is, et cetera, et cetera. But it's Wes Craven who establishes, uh, who really, who really brings life into that scene along with the cast. Drew Barrymore is fantastic. And there is an argument to be made that Drew Barrymore could be an MVP because of her casting, you know, without Drew Barrymore, they wouldn't have the budget without Drew Barrymore. They would not have the rest of the cast because the rest of the cast joined the movie because they heard that Drew Barrymore was in the movie. And because everyone thought that she was actually the star of the film and nobody knew that she was going to die in the first scene because all of the marketing revolved around Drew Barrymore, the posters, the trailers, the interviews on talk shows. 
uh, having her die in that opening scene was, of course, equivalent to having Janet Lee die in the opening of Psycho. It was like, you know, a huge deal back in 1960. And this was a huge deal in 1996. But Wes Craven is my pick. I have two picks. I had to cheat. I'm so sorry. But also, neither of them are people that y'all pick. So it seems fine. Um, no, pick number one is Nev Campbell. Because uh, I love how she paints, you know, we talk about, you know, tough as nails protagonists and how, you know, uh, this this concept of like strong female characters or whatever. But what I love about her as a character and, and what she brings in her performance is that she is tough and fierce, but she's not cartoonishly. So I don't think um, maybe she's a little bit more like maybe 25 percent more acrobatic than she really believably would be. but. Um, you know, she she seems to me a believable human person who just happens to have some survival instincts due to, you know, past trauma, perhaps. Um, and I don't know. I just thought it was really believably rendered. And she's uh, so tough and so fun to watch. And she even inspired an entire excellent rap song called 96 Nev Campbell by Clipping. Seriously, go listen, pause this podcast and go listen to that song. It fucking whips. <laughs> uh, so just for that alone, she deserves a pick. Um, and my other pick is Kevin Williamson, um, because I think the, the, especially in this case, like the, this, the screenplay is, is King. I mean, everything else came together rather nicely, but it all coalesces around that. And I, I, I don't know. I think the, I like to think of Kevin Williamson and, uh, and Wes Craven as Dr. Dre and Eminem, you know, like. The like Kevin Williamson comes along and rejuvenates his career with this, you know, self-referential kind of like, uh, you know, m- masterful approach to the art that also happens to reference the maestro's art constantly. Um, I don't know. I just think it's it's a really it's a really fruitful relationship and collaboration, and um, uh, I think he deserves a, a a a lion's share of the credit for what goes right here. I'm not going to argue, and I think these are all great choices, and I think this is a, a prime example of a movie which has an all-star cast in front of the camera and behind the camera. But I would still give the edge to Wes Craven because that mm. opening scene, which, again, we're going to talk about shortly, it's what everyone talks about. It's what everyone was talking about. It, it was like the greatest first impression to any film, period. Like It was incredible. Incredible. And again, that's not on paper. That's all Wes Craven's doing. If that was a less talented director and that movie opened up with a very like plain, boring, typical sort of like opening to like any horror film, those badly shot screen might might have never been a hit and we might not have former movies after. I think the real MVP in that opening scene is Drew Barrymore's wig. If anything, Mm. that deserves the MVP. That wig does a lot of work. (laughs) No, um, but yeah, I agree with all of these. And the Nev Campbell uh, MVP also reminds me of she fights from the very beginning, which is something I love. And she's even smart about mm-hmm. the way she fights. Like, I think one of my favorite things that she does in the bathroom scene is it could have so easily been, you know, the end to our hero, or she could have just, you know, been so easily got the shit kicked out of her or something. But she is able to like slide under Ghostface, if I remember correctly. Like she's able to get out the door, even though he's blocking her exit. 
And it's just such mm-hmm. a great example of how without, you know, your final girl, your lead girl, like being smart and getting out of these situations constantly from the get go, I wouldn't be able to suspend my disbelief for, you know, three, four films that she would be able to get herself out of these troubles. I also have to say, uh, Ricky, you were talking about how iconic the opening is and how only Wes Craven could have done it. The opening is also so important because the main thing that I might, if if if, if I was in a psychiatrist's office and someone said Scream 1996 and I had to pick the next mental association, it probably would have been the MTV Movie Awards. Um, and I think it was so key to hook that te- that like that audience raised on music videos to hook them in the first, you know, nine, 10 minutes with what sort of feels like the movie equivalent of a long music video. Um, I thought was so, so smart. And uh, whether, I don't know how intentional every step of that was in terms of engineering its success, but uh, either way, it was incredibly serendipitous. Scream, Scream had uh, an audience that reached far beyond just your typical horror movie buff. I mean, it made a lot of money for a reason. Yeah. And of course, like anything that doesn't cost a lot of money to make, but makes a lot of money, they immediately set out making more of it. But we have other podcasts about that. Next question. Um, what do we want to do next? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, best or your favorite scene or sequence? Uh, once again, Lee, I'm going to start with you. Um, so I have a few. I'm not going to pick the typical first one with Drew Barrymore. Um, I'm still going to go for the scene where Randy's watching the horror film and everyone's left him. He's alone. He's watching the horror film. He's watching Jamie Lee. He's yelling at Jamie Lee to look behind you, look behind you and it's ghost face behind him. Um, and just following that sequence where ghost face, you know, leaves, uh, we think Randy's going to die. Ghost face leaves Randy. Um, and Gail, you know, takes off running, finds Kenny dead. She tries to escape like that whole sequence, which I guess is basically the beginning of the final end sequence in total. It's just so well done. And I just love the, again, self-referential, which now feels almost passe, but at the time it was not of, you know, Randy shouting at the TV while Ghostface is behind him. And the use of technology. Yes. The 30 minute delay. Oh, sorry. Yes. 30 30 second second delay. Yes. Yeah. The hidden camera, which mm-hmm. could have been like a cell phone, a webcam. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing. I love the 30 second delay. A 30 is second motherfucking delay. Things. So yeah. smart. I love so that fun. so yes. much. Uh, and I, again, I just love that they got W. Roe Brown for that. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I love that whole, the whole, the whole surveillance and delay aspect is such a stroke of fucking genius, which is again, another hat tip I have to give to Kevin Williamson for the, uh, for the concept. Uh, Ricky, how about you? Favorite scene? The opening scene. I got to talk about it. Like the opening scene was filmed in sequence over the course of a week, seven days to shoot 12 minutes. They wanted to keep Barrymore at the edge of her seat and in character. So while receiving the mysterious phone calls, Wes Craven asked the actor Roger Jackson, who did the voice of Ghostface, to remain in a separate location. So she would actually get the phone calls. Like they, they tried everything to really keep her in character. And that first scene was, I mean, let's be honest, it's modeled after the opening scene in when a stranger calls, which if you haven't seen when a stranger calls, it is such an incredible horror film, like a slasher film. And it is the main inspiration for scream, not Halloween, not black Christmas. It's when a stranger calls anyhow. So, Here we have Drew Barrymore. She gets top billing. 
You know, she's like the big, huge star and they're going to kill her off in the first scene, much like Hitchcock did in Psycho with the actress Janet Lee, which I think is a ballsy move. I, I don't think anyone had done anything similar since Hitchcock, because usually movie producers will not let you kill your big star in the opening scene because they want to sell tickets. Right. So but it's 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 just like like if you watch that scene, the way it slowly builds to her being murdered. It's a masterclass of how to create suspense in a horror film. When the phone rings and then it seems harmless and it seems like it's just a guy who has a wrong, who, who, who dialed the wrong number. Then he calls back and then it gets a little bit more creepy. And then you get that line. I want to know who I'm looking at. And then you get the score, you know, that, that music mm-hmm. kicks in and that's when everyone in the theater freaked out i remember seeing this on the big screen it was it was like one of the best one of the best movie theater experiences i've ever had in my entire life it was so fun to watch this in a packed house um you know like a thousand people downtown montreal watching this movie and then she's you know walking around the house and you're trying to figure out what's going on and where's the killer and then her boyfriend gets introduced and her boyfriend gets killed and I mean, it's just it's it's just so good. <laughs> like It's so good. And Drew Barrymore is amazing in the scene, but it's also like the way it ends. It's so tragic because she comes so close, so close to escaping death. Like she runs out of the house. Her parents are are just about to arrive. She sees them from the distance driving towards the house. 60 more seconds and she would have survived and they can hear her on the phone also. Yes. 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 That's the, that's the best part when they enter the house and they clearly know someone broke in and the popcorn is still on the stove and there's a small fire and then they pick up the phone and they hear her, but they don't know where she is. And then the mom walks out of the house and you get that dolly into her expression as she screams. And then we see her, Drew Barrymore's character hanging from the tree. Tragic. My favorite, uh, and again, hat tip to Kevin Williamson, my favorite detail about this scene is uh, Drew Barrymore's character lying about having a boyfriend and then correcting herself and then the boyfriend actually being a real person. Um, yes. Th- every every single bit of that, I think, is such an interesting choice. Also, just the way she clearly lies about seeing the movie Friday the 13th because she clearly does not know who the killer is. So she must just be getting confused <laughs> with all of the sequels. And also Obviously. when she's on the ground and he's going to stab her for the first time, I think it's the first time. And you get the reflection of the knife and then she pulls his mask and the camera just slightly pans so you don't see the killer's face. and You just get the reflection of her on the knife. Oh, man. Genius. Genius direction. I always love too that they the scene where the parents are coming up to the door and she's right there like she's right there if they had just looked left but she's lost her voice because mm. right he he like knifed her her neck or her larynx or something and she's just that like whisper and she's trying so hard. I want to know whose idea that was like was that in the screenplay or was that Wes Craven because that too is so clever like the fact that. She can't actually scream for help, whereas yeah. in most movies, the victim will scream. That's where the whole scream queen thing comes from. But I have to say, another thing that surprised me about this opening sequence and the movie in general, yes, it's a slasher movie, and yes, many people are killed with knives, which is necessarily violent. But really, the violence is pretty muted, in my opinion, 
for a movie of this type in general. Like the worst we get is really in that sequence when uh, her boyfriend's insides are hanging out. Although to be honest, I've never been quite clear on how that happens. And I don't, I'm, I'm not, a, I feel like they, they, I don't know. I feel like there's some missing footage in there or something where <laughs> um, that that's the only sort of iffy bit of that sequence. But um, I don't know. I, I, I was surprised at how PG 13, ironically, most of the violence in this movie is. Well, except for the end. I mean, I, I think when she's actually being stabbed, like it's pretty brutal. Like it leaves a lot to the imagination, but there's, the reflection of her face, her actual reactions, the um, the sound effects. And we also got to give credit to whoever the Steadicam operator is or was in this film because it was shot with a Steadicam and the camera work is amazing because it has to move throughout the whole entire house. And uh, also the set, the set is pretty good. But, um, but yeah, like, I mean, with the phone call and the dialogue, I mean, that's also the scene that that established the acknowledgement of horror movie cliches and that let us, the audience know that this movie is going to be different. So everything about the scene is pitch perfect. Like, like I think, I think this is one of the greatest scenes ever shot for any horror film and for any film for that matter. Like, I think it's that great of a scene. It sets the Uh, tone really quickly too, at how much Wes Craven loves horror with the, the horror homages straight from the beginning. Like there's no if, ands or buts what we're getting here. We're getting a movie by someone who loves horror and wants to play into all of these tropes, but also subvert them. We're going to mix it up a little bit. Uh, favorite character, number one character, as opposed to as opposed to performance. Uh, Leah, I think you, you sort of sneakily answered this already via Gail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know if you have a runner up or if you'd like to use this time to pick an MVP instead. That's, uh, <laughs> that's totally that's totally fine. I leave it to you. Um. Maybe, you know what? Maybe my favorite character is Tatum because she she's again so underrated, and she the best friend, especially the female best friend in a horror film, is usually so relegated to being a cliche. Um, but Tatum isn't really a cliche, and I just I love the glass bottle throwing sequence that we were talking about earlier, mm. and how she just keeps throwing them and throwing them, and like. Yeah, probably Tatum, actually, purely because of the glass bottle sequence. All right, Ricky, best character. I'm a huge fan of Rose McGowan. I love her. She's amazing. Doom Generation, Jawbreaker, any movie she's in, I love. I want to pick her. I think, look, I think Gail is the best character in the movie. I think she's Mm -hmm. the best character in the franchise. Yeah. (sighs) Favorite character. There's a difference between favorite and best. And I think, man, I love Dewey. Like, I just love (laughs) Dewey. Like, he's just so adorable. I love the scene when she meets him for the first time and she gives him that pitch where, you know, my target audience has been proven to be anyone from the age of 14 to 24. You're 25. I guess I missed you by like a year. And then afterwards, he walks away and he's like, well, you know, I was 24 for an entire year and because like, she realizes that he actually does watch the show. But I think it's because it's the chemistry between David Arquette and Courtney Cox, who, of course, went on to get married and have kids. And even their 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 actual like real relationship, like I actually care about this celebrity couple. I usually don't care about celebrity couples, but I care about th- them <laughs> because I love I just love them. Like they're, they're so perfect. And so I think it's a combination of Gail and Dewey. What I'm trying to say here is when Gail 
and Dewey are in the same scene, they're they are both at their best. And so ah, it's hard for me to choose, Simon, but it's like it's 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 can I what just you, choose the two of them? <laughs> yeah, oh, I see, I see. Your favorite character is is Wove. <laughs> I think. We, we you're exposed as a giant softy. I like that. Um all right. My favorite character, I have to give a shout out to um I don't know if it's I don't know if it's character or performance, which I, I don't know. In this movie, it really blends together because um, because uh, the I don't know. I just I feel like it's uh, like a lot of the characters really are quite archetypal, uh, and a lot of the specificity comes out in performance. Um, this is all, all I'm trying to say here is I love watching whatever the fuck it is Matthew Lillard is doing in this movie. Oh yeah, uh, he is just especially in that video store see, scene. Just his his facial expressions are just fucking wild. Like I don't know how he was directed or what that process was, but um, even I don't know. I, I find him to always be so fun to watch. Um, just I, I feel like he's due a really meaty role in something very soon because he's always such a great supporting player. I watched an interview with him recently and he rewatched Scream 1. He's completely different. He's older, he's matured. He's like, man, mm-hmm. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> he's a completely different person. That rocks. Um, yeah, shout out to Matthew Lillard. I don't know what he brings to that character. I think it's just, it's just really great. No, no offense to Skeet Ulrich, who, you know, is very, is also very fun to watch, but I don't know he's just a little bit more one note, whereas uh, Lillard is just all over the shop. Um, now here, here's, here's a toughie. You can change one thing about Scream 1996. Uh, Ricky, what is it? This is easy. It drove me nuts the first time I watched it. And every time I watched a movie, it drives me nuts. Okay, so there's a lot of moments in a film where it's, you know, you have to stretch your imagination. It's it just whatever. It's just it's silly, right? The principal scene, for example, having Freddie in the background, some some of the pop culture references. But there's one scene when Rose McGowan and Nev Campbell, their characters are talking outside of the school. And there's someone watching them from a distance, hiding in the bushes. And so when they walk away, we see someone jump out and it's a guy wearing the ghost face costume. It's so stupid. Like it's such a stupid scene. And so the thing is, it's not actually the killer. Like it's just a student dressing up like ghost face because there's a bunch of students going around the school pulling a prank. But the scene is just so poorly, like, like it's just poorly conceived. Like, there was no need to have, I mean, I understand what they're doing. Like, that's where the meta comes in. And, like, they're, they're referencing, like, you know, horror films from the past and how stupid it would be to have the killer just stalking and staring at the victims from a distance, hiding in the bushes like Michael Myers would do. But that scene just drove me nuts. I just thought it was like, it should be removed. Like that one, that one shot, you know, Mm -hmm. like have them leave and then cut. Do not show the person actually hiding in the bushes. Uh, I think that's a fair one. My, my note is similar to that, which is there's just a few pretty gratuitous jump scares that really don't need to be there and don't add anything to the movie in my opinion like i don't know it, it's like the movie gets anxious that it's spending too much time just hanging out with this characters in this cozy vibe and then it has to insert a shot of like you know courtney cox is sitting calmly in her vehicle and dewey walks up to the window at a normal speed and there's like <laughs> oh this is a jump scare like oh i don't think i don't know if we needed that but it's really i don't know it's a minor thing but it does bug me Mine is a similar, probably minor 
inconvenience more thing that pulls me out a little bit is when they find out the Henry Winkler has died, which again, love that Henry Winkler's in this. <laughs> um, love that. They, like the group of high school kids um, who are watching the horror film, they like jump up excitedly and run to the football field ex- or get in the cars or whatever or something to excitedly go see that the principal has been gutted and hung from a football field post. And that just felt a little bit uh, like a misunderstanding of there's a theme that's running throughout the movie that I'm remembering now of like, I don't understand kids this age, kids this age, they do, they do messed up Mm -hmm. shit. Like they're so into violence. They're so into this. And it's a theme that runs throughout that. I think they leaned a little too hard on in this sequence where as if like actual high school kids would be excited to go and see somebody hung and gutted on the football field just because he happens to be their principal, you know, like that was a little too, (laughs) a little too weird for me. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's actually a mishandling of the director because that works thematically, but it's just the way they all get up and leave and they're all happy and mm-hmm. they look like they're going to like a party. Yes. Like they're at a party, but they're leaving a party to go to a different party, but it's not a party. They're going to watch a guy like hanging from like whatever the goalpost that's dead. Yeah. It makes no sense. It's weird. And the reason why. I understand why it's written into the screenplay is because they want to get those main characters alone in the house. And in that scene, it's get Randy alone. So you Mm -hmm. need to remove everyone Mm -hmm. else. That makes sense. There's a reason for the scene to exist the way it does. It's just the actual, um, the way the actors, and like those are mostly, oh, they're all, they are extras, right? Yeah. But it's, it's just the way he actually filmed it and the way they actually act. It's, it's kind of silly. It, it's another, although it does provide another funny little subversion that these kids who basically abandon the plot to go look at a dead guy in a in a football field all survive this ordeal because they get out <laughs> of the situation, uh, which is kind of a funny invert. Like if this was, you know, a sleepaway camp movie or something, all those kids would get gutted for ha- for being crass enough to want to go see a dead bo- a dead guy in a football field, you know. Um, and I'll, I also love that the uh, another another effective subversion that I want to give uh, Kevin Williamson a shout out for is elaborately setting up Jamie Kennedy, one of the world's most annoying actors uh, as potential. And I give I'm, I'm saying that as a plus because it's it's an asset to this movie uh, as like he's got victim painted all over him, except for the fact that he's a virgin. So the movie both honors and sort of subverts its own tropes by not killing him. Um, but it also results in him saying, I've never been happier to be a virgin, which is one of the funniest lines in the movie. In my <laughs> anyway, uh, does this pass the Howard Hawks test or as we also like to refer to it, the Patrick Murphy test? Three great scenes and no bad ones. Uh, Ricky, what do you think? Yeah, I think we just basically named two bad scenes. I mean, that's not a good scene. I, well, the thing is. Having the kids run out like that, I mean, it's 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 within a scene and it's a moment, but it kind of it's ruins beat, the scene yeah. to some extent. It's a beat, yeah. But also, I don't know. Like, I, I even if even if you think the movie doesn't have any quote unquote bad scenes, I don't think it has three great scenes. Like great scenes, like the opening scene is iconic, and I do think the scene towards the end of the film where they use the thirty second delay could be considered a great scene. But unlike Scream 2, and everyone should go back and listen to our podcast review of Scream 2 in the archives, that movie has three great scenes and no bad scenes. Mm. I'm going to say no. 
I uh, I'm gonna have to. I think I agree with you. Um, but I I I don't know if it has any bad scenes, but I'm not sure it has three. I think I would agree with that. Uh, Leah, what do you think? I think I agree with that as well because although although to me the it's more the three great scenes that I um see, agree with. Uh, I don't necessarily think that there's an entirety of a bad scene, like you're saying. It's just that there's a couple of beats that don't work for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can't name another iconic scene that sits in my brain other than that opener, the 30 second delay, and maybe some beats throughout. Although that um, that garage scene with Rose McGowan, mm. that could be a great scene for me. Pretty, pretty good. Yeah. It's close. Yeah. <laughs> Scream 2. What I said on the podcast is the opening, the prologue in the movie theater is a great scene. The cat and mouse chase in film school, which also uses the radio station, mm. is an incredible scene. And then there's the car crash. That is an incredible scene. Mm. So that movie has three guaranteed great scenes. God, people drive like maniacs in these fucking movies. Have you, have you noticed <laughs> that? <laughs> I don't know if it's just Americans or I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> um uh, so I'm going to modify our usual last question a little bit um, as sort of a as sort of a way to take us out. But uh, Ricky, how do you think if let's say you're a, a, a imagine you're a 19 year old horror buff in 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 2021 and you're sitting down to watch Scream for the first time? What kind of what kind of experience do you think uh, the youth of today are going to have with it? I think they're going to be blown away by the opening scene and they're going to expect an incredible movie. They're going to get an incredible movie, but they're going to be a little let down because that opening scene is a million times better than what follows in 2021 because they've already seen so many similar movies. And that's the problem with all of the scenes that come after They're They're very similar to what we have now in most horror films, you know, but that opening scene it's going to grab their attention. I still think they're going to love the movie. I just don't know if they're going to like, it's, it's clearly not going to have the same effect on a younger generation as it did to whoever watched it for the first time in 1996 before every movie started copying what these guys were doing. I, I do think it helps that uh, basically all the young actors in this film, a young, you know, in their mid twenties still show up in stuff a lot. Like Matthew Lillard will be familiar to many people. Skeet Ulrich is on Riverdale, um, stuff like that. I think they'll, there are fun ways in for people. Rose McGowan is now a person of you know repute in various ways, which people will also find interesting. Hey, just really quickly, um, when you watch Scream 4, you're going to see what they do in the opening scene. Because like every movie has the big sort of iconic opening, right? And Scream 4, like, it's really geared at the new generation. Like, it's it's kind of clever what they do with Scream 4. Lucy Hale is in Scream 4, right? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Scream 4, yeah. Okay, I always find that a little bit funny. I don't know how up-to-date you are on your um, celebrity dating relationships, the two of you, but Lucy Hale and Skeet Ulrich dated for a few months. I think it was just last year. Did you guys know that? I did not know that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not up enough to be following Skeet Ulrich's dating life. Yeah, yeah she she's like the main player in uh, Scream Four. Yeah, yeah. So I just always find it funny they're they're both part of the Scream franchise because when they started dating, I think they're twenty something years apart. Everyone was a little bit shook for a little while. <laughs> Wes Craven must what must run a really comfy set because apparently people just keep <laughs> falling for each other on the set. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's crazy the cast for Scream Four. Like it's it's huge. Like I feel like it was also a time capsule, like that particular cast. Mm. Well, you got Anna Paquin, you got Kristen Bell, you got Lucy Hill, you got uh, of course you got David Arquette, Courtney Cox returning, Nev Campbell returning, Rory Culkin's in a film. Sure. Man, Why they not? should put Kieran Culkin in, in Scream 5. Ugh. Which, the only thing is, I don't know how I feel about Scream 5. That movie better be good, because I, I I don't like the idea that Wes Craven is no longer here to direct Scream 5, because he actually directed all four previous films. Um, We'll see what happens. Who's directing oh. the new one? It's the, the guys that directed the movie Ready or Not. Oh. Mm-hmm. Which, I love that yeah. movie. Come on. Um, there's another shout out I have to give before we go, which is to, uh, whoever handled the music supervision because, uh, really, really love the needle drops in this movie. Uh, I love red right hand by Nick cave showing up as the sort of unofficial theme song. Uh, I love the use of a sort of, um, a quiet version of don't fear the reaper by blue oyster cult in a key sequence. Um, I don't know. I just think it's, it's, a. it's a witty and not too, too obvious set of songs, except, of course, for School's Out, which is just hilarious. It's funny. I made comments in my notes as well about the Blue Oyster Cult song and how it's almost like a little perfect capsule of music uh, at this specific time. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's uh, it's time to take us out. Leah, where can our listeners find you online if you w- indeed wish to be found? <laughs> Um, so I'm on Twitter at L D Worsby. Um, so that's L as in Leah, D as in Dawn, uh, W E R S E B as in boy E. And you can find me at tilt. Excellent. And, uh, Ricky, where can people find you and the podcast? Yeah. Do not forget to check out the series of scream articles over at tiltmagazine.net. We're going to be releasing it leading up to the, uh, release of scream five man i hope the movie does not get delayed but 2022 is not looking very good guys but we'll see um you can find me on twitter sorted cinema you can find the podcast over at sorted which will redirect you to the main site anything sorted cinema you can listen to the podcast on itunes spotify amazon uh, podbean you name it it is everywhere if you like what you hear recommend it to your friends speak to me on twitter and leave us leave us a review and for you Euro art house freaks, I am still making the Ackerman year with Kate Renabom. Episode two drops very soon. Uh, episodes will be dropping monthly for the next uh, year or so. And uh, that's about it. Thank you for joining us, Leah. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? Uh, have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one. You can never have sex. Big no no! Big no! Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin, it's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back.
Thing that you can do, he's a god, he's a man. 